Our scripture passage today comes from Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Galatians 2, 19 through 21, and Galatians 6, 14. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, Thank you, Kim. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Welcome to the summer. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege uh, to speak to you this morning from these passages of Scripture that Kim just read to us. We are continuing a series on a doctrine in Christian theology. Sorry about that. That is called Union with Christ. And I am I'm nervous because um, a lot of this is going to feel a little more heady and uh, harder to understand because the, what, what theologians call this is the mystical or the, um, well, the mystical doctrine of our mystical union with Christ. And the reason they use the word mystical is because it's mysterious and mystical. <laughs> and so it can be very confusing. There's mystery. It's of spiritual nature, and so it's just hard. Okay, But a Christian, we've said, is a person who is in Christ, who has been united to Christ by faith and is one with him the way a husband and wife are one legally, right, spiritually, even sexually, or bound to him, organically connected to him the way a vine is connected to the branches, John says in John 15. That's what it means. That's what we mean by union with Christ. We mean this being united to Jesus. And I'm really, I really have been just laboring to figure out ways to explain this in ways that are not academic. So for the kids this morning, okay, uh, if you're here, I know most of them are over there, but for the, uh, the rest of you who are here, teenagers, you're kids, okay? Sorry to break it to you. You're still kids. So for you guys who are still over here, uh, I don't know if you got the chance, any of you, to read uh, the book by Christopher Paulini called Aragon. But in Aragon, it's a book, it's a science fiction book, for those of you who are adults who have not read it, about, uh, about dragons and people who, who, warriors who are dragon riders who ride their dragons. And in the book, here's a metaphor for what I'm trying to get at with this union with Christ. Uh, dragons and their riders are said to bond in the book. They are linked together. They're connected to one another by this deep bond. They experience a deep intimacy with one another, uh, an emotional attachment to one another. They, but, it, but really, it's even more than that. They, they no longer, the dragon and its rider, no longer act independently of one another. They share a consciousness. If one is wounded in battle, the other shares and experiences the pain. And ultimately, if one of them dies... The other will die too. That kind of union. A sense of no longer being two separate entities, but now being one consciousness, one 
entity, the two becoming one, the way a husband and wife become one. To be a Christian means that you're bound, you become one with Jesus like that. So what we've said is, and we're going to do this every week, I was counseled by some people I trust to to go back and to show you these slides on a weekly basis. And what we've said is that, that the problem we have is all of the ways that we typically talk about being a Christian or becoming a Christian are in terms of accepting Jesus as my Savior, accepting Jesus into my heart, and they can all be summed up by this slide. And, and what you see on this slide is me and my life are at the center, and there are all of these different aspects and activities that I'm a part of. And then what I do, Susan, if you click the button, I just add Jesus or church on as just another part of my already busy life. And so really what's at the center is me and my story and my life. And then my life is made up, my desires and my life and my desires are made up of balancing all of these different parts of my life. And so Jesus or church or religion, whatever word you would want to put on, put on that, is just another sometimes little, sometimes kind of big part. But really at the end is just one little part or one little segment of what I mean by me and my life. Now biblically and historically the church has understood that become, to become a Christian means not that Jesus comes into your life, but that you come into his So when the Apostle Paul talks about believing in Jesus, in the Greek language, he talks about believing into Jesus. That faith means believing into him. You you change locations. You move out of your life and yourself and into his life and into his story. And I've illustrated that by this. So here I am on the outside, but the, the arrow represents my believing into Jesus. And watch what happens when I believe into Jesus. My life gets moved. And now all of me and my life and my story are a subset of Jesus and his life and his story. I'm now a part of him. I've, I've changed locations. I've moved into him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So a warning for all of us this morning. If, if you're here and you've not experienced a radical change in your self-understanding and your relationships with people and your mission in life due to Christianity, then you might not be a Christian. Being a Christian isn't believing the right things, see? It isn't behaving in a Christian way. The essence, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is union with Christ. Okay? Okay? And the summary statement we've been looking at is then what it means for us to be in union with Christ is what goes for him goes for me. You can take that off now, Susan, if you want. Thanks. What goes for him goes for me. That Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. If by faith I'm united to him, then God finds me in him, Paul says, right? I I leave behind my record of sin. I gain his perfect record of obedience. His life is my righteousness. His righteousness is my righteousness. What goes for him goes for me. That's what we talked about last week. But also, it means this, that when Jesus died, I died with him. And so Paul says here in Galatians 2.20, you saw that conglomeration of texts. This is what we're going to do this summer. We're going to take a couple of texts from different places and kind of piece them together, okay? So there in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. The word there is very specific. It means to crucify two people at the same time. I've been co-crucified with Christ. That's what the word means. What goes for him goes for me. He died on the cross. I died there with him. Isn't that confusing? 
I mean, what, what does that mean? See, so we have a lot of work before us this morning to understand and make sense of these things and try to apply them to our lives. But that's what we're going to talk about. What does Paul mean when he says, I have been crucified, I've been co-crucified with Christ? Three things, the three points of your outline on the back of your sheet there you can see. Uh, this, this idea of being co-crucified with Christ, it is first a truth you have to believe. But then secondly, when you believe it, here's what happens. You begin to experience it subjectively. It comes into your life, you experience it, and it becomes the narrative structure of your life. And I'm going to explain that. So not only is being co-crucified with Christ is a truth that you must believe, but when you believe it, what happens is, is that you, you experience it subjectively, and then it becomes the narrative structure and story of your life. And then lastly, then how? How? how are the, what are the dynamics of how all that begins to work itself out? Those are the three things we want to talk about this morning. Okay, so first, Paul says, I have been co-crucified with Christ. You see that there in Galatians 2, um, verse 20. So this is, first of all, a truth that we have to believe. Paul, you see, has come to understand that he is connected to Jesus' death legally and forensically. That's where we have to start. Now, what do I mean by that? There is a gospel truth here in Jesus. Jesus in his death is our legal representative. And this is something we talked about a few weeks ago in our study on Hebrews. um, That Jesus in his death was our legal stand-in. That he was, the word we use is he's our champion. He died, not only dying for us, but he died dying as us. And so in the same way, remember the story of David and Goliath, in the same way when the Israelites and the Philistines were camped on either side of that valley, the solution to the standoff in their battle was for each side to choose a legal representative, a champion, a stand-in to meet in the valley and to fight one another. And the agreed-upon solution was, whosoever champion was victorious, that people was declared victorious in the victory of the champion. Do you remember this? And so David, the shepherd, went into the valley to fight against the giant Goliath as Israel's champion, as their legal representative. He didn't just fight for them, he fought as them. And if he was victorious, then they were counted victorious too. But if he was defeated, then they would be defeated. So there was this sense of David being a stand-in, him being a champion, him being the legal representative of his people on the battlefield. And Jesus, when he died, legally, Paul says, we died with him. He was our stand-in. He was our legal representative. Being united to him in his death, it was just as if we were there. This is what Paul's trying to teach us. In Romans 6.23, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. So sin merits death. God came to Adam and Eve in the the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, and he said, don't eat the fruit of this tree. And on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. If you sin against me, the wages of your sin is death. Jesus' mission then was to rescue us from our sin, which means that he had to die the death that we should have died. But when Paul says, I'm co-crucified with Christ, he means that we are so completely bound to Jesus in his death that God looks upon each of us as if it was we who died. And that's why we can be forgiven of our sins. Because Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice, and we're in him. We are crucified with him. What goes for him goes for me. So that's the truth. You, see, there's a truth you have to believe. 
But I want to go farther into this because remember, we've said that union with Christ is not just a doctrine we believe, it's something we experience. And I, I want to say this is where we've really, really, really messed up in the church. It's because we've said in order to be a Christian, all you have to do is believe the right things. And I want to say that's true, but that's not true. To be a Christian, you have to be in Christ. And being in Christ means you enter into the narrative storyline of Jesus' life and resurrection. You change locations and you enter into his life and story. And so in order to understand how, you know, how is it that believing that you're co-crucified with him leads you to experience, remember, and enter. You experience it, you internalize it, you go out and enter into the story of his death. We have to think through this statement here in Galatians 2 within the larger context of the book of Galatians and specifically the line of thought that Paul is tracing out here in Galatians 2, okay? And what you see, and we did this three years ago in 2009, we went through this whole book. And what you see here in Galatians 2, it's not printed for you, but earlier in verses 15 and 16, you see that the issue Paul's working through is the issue of righteousness or justification. There were a certain group of people called the Judaizers who had come in and infiltrated the Galatian churches, and they began to teach people that they had to follow all the Jewish law in order to be saved. They had to be circumcised. They had to do all of the, you know, they had to eat the right foods. They had to follow all of these religious prescriptions. And if they followed all the rules and if they did all of the right things, then, then God would reward them with life and salvation. And Paul is writing to these churches he planted to say, no, no, that's not right. He's providing a correction. And he says up there in verse 16, no one, you can't be justified by works of the law. You can't get a righteousness. By doing all the right things. I mean, this is what we talked about last week in Philippians 3, where Paul starts to list out his spiritual resume. You remember? Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, regarding the the legal requirements of the law, blameless. And Paul goes through and he begins to list all. If if anybody has confidence in the flesh, listen, I have more than anybody else. Because look at all these things, that who I am and all these things that I've done. And he gets to the end of the list and he says, You know, Paul realizes all of his do-gooding, he says, is rubbish. And his statement there echoes the prophet Isaiah who says that our very best moral efforts, when held up to the light of God's holiness, are in reality filthy rags. And I wish I had the courage to tell you what that, that, that word is the most unsanitary, gross thing you can possibly imagine. And I'm just too sheepish to even say it, because it makes me embarrassed. But he's saying it, it's just, it's unsanitary and filthy. Our very best works. And that really takes some unpacking, doesn't it? Because the Apostle Paul was a pretty good guy. I mean, he himself said that in re- regards to the righteous requirements of the law, he was blameless, he said. And that means that Paul was more committed to generosity and honesty and sexual purity and helping other people than any single person in this room. And yet he says that all of it was a bunch of garbage that it didn't count for anything. And the reason it didn't count for anything, because because Paul came to see that really it was just selfishness in disguise, that underneath all of his good moral efforts and obedience were pride and greed and selfishness that ruined all the external stuff. Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago I'm reading Little House on the Prairie with my seven-year-old daughter, and it's really great. Because you, you, if you know the story, you know the two main characters, are, at least in the early books, are these two girls, Mary and Laura. And, I, and Mary is a good girl. She's got beautiful blonde hair. She's the elder. She's the, just the prototypical elder brother. 
right? Always doing the right thing, always obeying her parents, never causing any trouble. And then there's Laura, who's the rebel. She's the younger of the prodigal son, so to speak. Uh, you know, always getting in trouble, always kind of testing the water. And I have a, a Mary and a Laura in my house. This is great. But later in the books, there's this conversation later in the series between the two, and it's re- it's just so it's so fascinating. Uh, Mary's become blind, and if that's a spoiler alert, although it's too late, I think you probably know that. Um, But their relationship really develops, and they become really good friends. And they begin to have this conversation, and Laura says to her sister, you used to try to try all the time to be good, and you always were good. Now listen, this it made me so mad sometimes, I wanted to slap you. Right? Because I wish I could be like you, but I don't think I ever will be. I don't know how you can be so good. And so what Laura's wrestling with is she just... Her, dad, her mom and dad tell her no, and she just, oh, underneath the no of her parents. And then there's Mary, and she's just nice and prim and proper and sweet. You know, and Laura just says, gosh, you just made me want to slap you. But listen to Mary's response. She says, I'm not really good, Laura. I do try. But if you could see how rebellious and mean I feel sometimes, if you could see what I really am inside, you wouldn't want to be like me. And then she goes on, and this is the, this is the million-dollar pitch. She says, I know why you wanted to slap me. It was because I was showing off. I wasn't really wanting to be good. I was showing off to myself what a good little girl I was and being vain and proud, and I deserved to be slapped for it. Laura, shocked, says, Oh, no, you're not like that. Not really. You are good. To which Mary responds, We are all desperately wicked, Lord, and inclined to evil, but that doesn't matter. Do you hear that? Listen listen to this. Watch this. this is, she says, we're all desperately wicked and inclined to evil, but that doesn't matter. Laura says, what? She says, I mean, I don't believe we ought to think so much about ourselves, whether we're good or bad. And that's a perfect illustration. Because what it's teaching is that there's a kind of righteousness that's not really righteousness. It's just showing off. It's human sin and selfishness and rebellion in disguise. It's trying to be good in order to feel superior to other people. And it's just yucky. And if you want the best illustration of what I'm talking about, you need to go see uh, the, the Broadway play Wicked and the, 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 um, the character of Glinda the Good. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's painful. I mean, it's this, this girl is so sappy. It's just painful to watch because it's not, it's not really goodness. It's just showing off. It's just pride and selfishness in disguise. And what Paul says and what the Bible says is we're all doing this all the time. And here in Galatians 2, Paul says that's false righteousness. It's a sham. In order to become righteous, the irony is you have to stop trying to be righteous. And his words to describe this are you have to die to the law. Look there in verse 19 of Galatians 2. He says, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. He says, I had to stop trying to be righteous. I had to stop thinking, like Mary says, so thinking so much about myself, my successes and my failures, before I could really begin to live for God. And that's a huge statement. It's huge because it means that before he became a Christian, Paul, the Pharisee, the good guy, the legalist, the religious person, what he means is, is in his moralism and in his legalism, Paul wasn't living unto God. Paul was living unto, God, unto Paul. That in his moral strivings, Paul was not obeying God for God. Paul was obeying God as a way of trying to control his life and put God in his debt. He was showing off. 
And the best illustration of, of helping you understand this is one that you've probably heard before. It's the illustration of the, the carrot and the horse. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and it was the biggest, most beautiful thing he'd ever grown in all of his life. So he took it to the king, and he said, his king, he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. Now listen. There was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said to himself, My, if that's what gets you, if that's what you get for a carrot. So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect to you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Paul says, I had to die to the law in order to be able to truly live to God. And that's, that, that, that happened when he came to understand the implications of being legally and forensically united to Jesus in his death. Galatians 2.19 leads to or is explained by Galatians 2.20. When Paul began to understand that he was co-crucified with Christ, what he says is, is, I died to the law. That is, he stopped trying to be righteous. He stopped trying to be good to give himself, you know, the horse. He stopped trying to be good to show off. His life was drained of selfishness. He stopped thinking about himself and worrying about whether he was righteous or not because he understood that his only hope for righteousness was not in him and his performance. It was that he was united to Jesus in his life and death. See? So that brings us to the second part that I want to I look at together from these verses. And that is that when Paul began to understand that he was legally co-crucified with Christ, that in Jesus' death he died... He also began, now watch this, to subjectively and personally experience this death. And then he was empowered to enter into the narrative structure of Jesus' death. In other words, Paul didn't just believe in the crucifixion. He experienced it, and he entered into it. So watch this. Go back to Galatians 2.20. I have been co-crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. Excuse me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's my paraphrase of that verse: I have been co-crucified with Christ. I died to my old way of life. Now I live a new kind of life, a life patterned after Jesus' love and sacrifice for me. And there are two parts to this that I want us to work through very quickly together. And that is the first is being united to Jesus in His death meant. Paul didn't just die legally. He truly, in reality, experienced a subjective, personal crucifixion. This is, this is where the mystical part comes in. Okay? So before you hear the Twilight Zone music in the background. Thank you. Thank you for the sound effect. I appreciate it. Right? Paul didn't just believe, see, for Paul to be united to Jesus means he didn't just believe that Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He says, I began to experience a subjective, inner, personal crucifixion. (laughs) 
Paul's whole life was trying to be a good person and gain a righteousness for himself through his good works. But he says, I've died to that way of life. And when he died to the law, when he stopped trying to be righteous on his own, something else happened. He actually began to become a righteous person. The power of sin was broken in his life, and he began to be free to live for God, not for Paul, but for God. Paul experienced the crucifixion personally, internally, internally, subjectively. He literally died. And if you look at Romans 6, which was your call to worship, you'll see that Paul, he says it this way. He explains this death in this way. He says, Jesus was crucified and died physically. But he says to us, we were crucified with him, but something spiritual happened to us. It happened in us. Look there. If you, I mean, it really is worth your time to go in your worship folder and turn back to those verses because in verse 6 of Romans 6, Paul says that the result of our being united to Jesus in his death is that the old self, the flesh, the old man, was crucified in order that sin might be brought to nothing. And so what Paul's teaching is, is that the sinful parts of our heart, if, you're, if, your faith is in, if you're a Christian and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've changed locations and you've come into Christ, then the sinful part of your heart, what the Bible calls the flesh, has been crucified and therefore the internal sinful dynamics of the heart are being destroyed. Paul says we're dead to sin. We don't live in bondage to sin anymore. We're dead to sin. And I know what you're thinking. You're like me. You're thinking, I don't feel dead to sin. Anybody? I feel very much alive to sin. And yet, Paul says you are dead to sin. But he also says you have to die to sin. Paul says you're dead to sin. He says put to death sin. And so the way you die to sin is to consider yourself already dead to it. This is complex and hard, and we're going to come back to it next week. But what Paul's saying is, is there was a time when you had no choice, when you were a slave to your own selfishness and self-concern, but something happened. Because of, your being, because of coming into changing locations and being united to Jesus, something's happened. A whole new world of possibilities has been opened to you. You're not a slave anymore. There's a new power at work in your life. You're, if you're here and you're a Christian, I need to say to you, you're no longer a slave to your selfishness. In fact, Paul says that part of you has died. And your heart is being healed. And since power is being broken, fully, no. But truly, yes. Paul says the old man, the sinful Nature of the flesh is crucified. He also says that in Jesus' death and being united to him, we not only die to sin, but in Galatians 6.14, if you look down there at that verse, he says, not only did we die to sin, but we also die to the world. So he says, through the cross, the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. So not only are the internal sinful dynamics of the heart being destroyed, but the external pressures and allegiances that lead to sin are unraveling. When Paul says the world, when he uses that word, the world, he means the conglomeration of evil, the fallen human society characterized by greed and consumption and hypersexuality and secularism and all of these things that seeks to press us into its mold. And so the death we experience in being co-crucified with Christ is a death to sin. It's also a death to the world. It's funny. We use this language, don't we? Um, my, my wife keeps trying to convince me after 15 years of marriage that she's a morning person. And yet if you could see my family for the first 30 minutes after we wake up in the morning, it's like a, bunch of, it's like a zombie movie that's come to life, right? The kids walk out. 
Hey, Canaan, how you doing? Uh. Parents, those of you who have to get kids up early and to get them to school, right? You experience this. They're in the back of the car. And what do we say about them? Oh, he's dead to the, he's dead to the world. And what do you mean? He's dead to the world. You know, there ought to be a rule. I think somebody put on a Facebook page recently, there ought to be a rule that nobody speaks to anybody for the first 30 or 45 minutes of the day. You know, whatever. I mean, the sense of that first few minutes, you wake up and it's just like you're dead to the world. Why? Because your, your exhaustion and your sleepiness is so profound that, I mean, you're just so in the throes of sleepiness and you haven't woken up yet that everything that's going on out here, you're completely oblivious to, right? That's what we mean. He's dead to the world. And Paul's saying that the cross, the cross can come into your life in such a way that nothing, that it'll be so profound in your, in your identity and self-understanding that nothing out here will even phase you. You can become dead to the world. What people think of you will no longer matter. Fitting in, being an insider will no longer matter. It won't hold any appeal to you. And so the internal dynamics of sin, dying to sin, the external dynamics of, of um, sin and being conformed to the pattern of sin, the world and its pressures and its allegiances, all of these things, Paul's saying, in being co-crucified with Christ, we've died to both the internal and to the external dynamics of sin. And the result then is that there's a new capacity and a new power to live life very differently. He says it this way, I know the life I live, I no longer live, you know, in myself, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he's saying there's a new capacity and power to live not for myself, to not be driven by my own selfish desires, but to love and to live sacrificially towards others. See, being united to Jesus in his death means you experience the crucifixion. You begin to die to sin and you begin to die to the world, but it also means that you now, because of this death, you now enter into, empowered by the Spirit in a new way, the narrative structure of the crucifixion. Let me explain that. Paul says, I, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, he says there in verse 20. The Greek's very ambivalent. It could just as easily be translated, the life I live in the flesh, I live according to or after the pattern of the faith or the faithfulness of the Son of God. And so the faith of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the Son of God, is described as his loving us and giving himself up for us. And so Paul says, this becomes the new pattern of our lives. That when we die to sin and to the world, we now can live to God and we're freed by the power of the Spirit to love after the pattern of Jesus. To love others and to sacrificially die for them the way he loved and died for us. That being united to Christ in his death means that if you were here, that the J-curve of entering into the dying life of Jesus that Paul Miller talked to us about a couple weeks ago, the sense of going into my own death in order to be resurrected by God for the sake of my wife or my children or whoever it might be, that this becomes the story of my life. That the cross becomes the narrative structure of the way I live and relate to people. We're going to talk about this in great detail, but let me just give you a couple of examples really quickly, and then we'll move on and we'll be done, okay? Husbands. In Ephesians chapter 5, what does Paul tell you? What instructions does he give you? Husbands, love your wives. Can anybody finish that for me? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Same exact language. So what does it mean? It means husband, Christian husbands... For you to be faithful to the call of God upon your life, your husbanding must take on the narrative structure of Jesus' love and sacrificial death for you. 
So guess what, husbands? I got good news for you. Your job description is to love your wife and to die for her. And women, by the way, that's why God calls you to submit to him. But think about that. That good husband, faithful biblical husbanding means I do not live for myself. I don't live for my, I don't care about her meeting my needs. That's not the point at all. My job description in some total is that I get to love this woman and die for her. Where does the power for that come from? I'm in Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. And now it becomes the narrative structure of the way I live my life. But for us as a church, I remember in the early days, we went downtown and we were peering in. We were peering in the window of the Ritz Theater and the lady who was in charge of Main Street Winter Haven at the time came up to Jonathan and I said, what are you guys doing? And we said, we're planting a church and we'd like to be down here. And she looked at us and said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want a church down here. And we got to talking to her. And the reason she didn't want a church down there is because she had never conceived of a church that was not for itself, but was for the city that it was in. So for us to be a church that is truly going to make the city of Winter Haven a great city, if our goal is not a great church but a great city, then we become a people who love and give ourselves up for our city. And not, the city does not exist for Redeemer. Church of the Redeemer exists for the city. You see, so this, this, so this, this suffering death for the sake of others becomes the narrative structure of my life. So then the last thing. If that's true then, if this is what Paul's saying, being united to him in his death means that the cross, I die and then I enter into it and then I literally move out and, and, and begin to live the narrative structure of the cross in my life, then the last thing we got to do is, then how? How does this happen? How, how does all of this put together? And so I want you to come to Galatians 6.14 and just look there because what Paul says is, when you come to understand that you've been co-crucified with Christ, you die to the law, and when you die to the law, you die to sin and you die to the world, and that frees you for exactly what we're talking about. But Paul's answer to how all of this happens is he says the cross has to become your boast. Do you see that? Far be it from, from me, except that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world, except that I boast in anything except the cross, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says the cross has to become your boast, and that's the mechanism by which all of these things begin to happen in your life. So what does it mean for the cross to become your boast? Well, the word boast there means to rejoice in, to take pride in, to glory in. And so your boast is the thing you've put your heart's deepest desire for happiness and meaning and purpose in. It's your ultimate hope. It's the thing that's most central to your understanding of who you are and why you're valuable. It may be a possession. It may be a relationship, it may be a skill, it may be your job, it may be your reputation, whatever it is, we all have something, we all have some boast that is the source of our inner confidence and strength. And Paul says what has to happen is, is the cross has to become your boast. He says the cross has to come into the very center of your life, it has to become what determines your identity and self-evaluation, that the cross has to begin to define you, it has to become your glory, your success, your significance. You have to draw your strength and your confidence from it and not anything else. And when that happens, here's what will happen in your life. First, it will humble you profoundly because there's an offense of the cross. And Jack Miller, our friend, who was fond of saying, you've never been so savagely critiqued as you are in the cross. No matter how good you are, you're not good enough. Stop pretending. Stop obsessively defending yourself and critiquing others. See, the cross breaks the power of sin by humbling you out of your pride. But then the other part of this is when the cross becomes your boast, 
It will secure you so thoroughly that on the one hand, you won't be trying to prove yourself through your obedience. You won't be trying to build a spiritual resume. You won't need to. You're already accepted. And so when the cross becomes your boast, you'll die to the law. And the consequence is when you die to the law, you'll die to sin. You'll begin to live unto God. But the other part, since power will be broken in your life because the cross becoming your boast will secure you so thoroughly that what others think of you won't matter anymore. You won't be looking for other people to affirm you. You won't be needing to show off so that you feel good about yourself or so that others applaud you. The cheers of the crowd won't take you too high and the booze won't cause you to despair. You won't need to fit in to feel good about yourself because you're already an insider in Christ. See? And so when the cross becomes your boast, the consequence is you die to the world. This is what Paul's saying. You've been co-crucified with Christ. You died with him to the demands of the law and thus to sin itself and to the draw of the world. Now, he says, go, go. Love. Make the dying life of Jesus for you the story of your life. Enter into the narrative of the cross and your husbanding of your wife and your parenting of your children and your loving of your employees in in our approach as a church to our city. Make the dying life of Jesus the story of your life. That's what we hope happens. And so let's pray that God would do that work in us, can we? And Terry's going to come and we're going to sing a couple songs. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at the truth that Paul is trying so desperately to drill home to our hearts that you are the one who, in love for us, came and gave your life for ours. And you have come into the very inner parts of our lives by your Spirit to undo what sin has done and to heal us of all of the ravages of it so that you might make us into a people who follow after you who enter into your story, experiencing our own death and our death with you, and then entering into the narrative structure of your dying for us and going and being a people who gladly die for the sake of the world that you so desperately love. That's scary. It's hard. And so we pray that you give us great grace this morning, that you would drill home to our hearts the truth of the love that you have for us displayed upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that as the truth... And the impression of the love that you have for us comes home to our hearts that indeed we would be people who are humble enough and who are secure and courageous enough that we might go and truly begin to love others and to give ourselves for them. That you might be glorified and that we might bear much fruit. That the watching world might take notice and say, those people are different and give you glory. That's our desire and prayer and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What an odd song. (laughs) Oh, the wonderful cross that bids me come and die. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Right? And yet the promise is, continue to go on with the chorus. Oh, the wonderful cross that bids me come and die, that I might truly live. And so the way you get the courage and the hope that you need uh, to, to truly go and begin to live the reality of the cross out in your relationships and in your life is to know that the one who sends you out to die is the same one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And just as we die in him, so we're also raised with him. See? So next week we're going to talk about that. So the promise of this benediction is that no matter what death awaits you on the other side of that door, whether it's caring for a child that's, that's hard and difficult, whether it's a marriage that's struggling, or whether it's just the worries of life, whatever the death is, if you turn in faith to the one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, then no matter how ugly the death might be, there's a resurrection on the other side promised for you. 
He is the one that sends you and promises to go with you. And that is the promise of this benediction. So then receive the benediction as the very thing you need to be empowered to go and live the kind of life he calls you to live. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.